You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. What Donald Trump started in 2019 has escalated under Joe Biden's watch. His administration's latest investment restrictions on Chinese tech are the latest move in what normally gets labelled as the U.S.-China tech war, but is in reality the U.S. bringing in sanctions and laws aimed at limiting China's technological development. So far, it's been Chinese companies targeted by restricting their access to all the technologies and equipment that make high-end semiconductors. But Biden's new executive order specifically restricts U.S. venture capital and private equity stakes in Chinese companies in three areas: semiconductors and microelectronics, quantum information technologies, and artificial intelligence. And as we discussed in our last episode with our colleagues Rob Delaney and Kinling Low, the Biden administration are calling this their small yard high fence strategy. You know, I'm thinking. Given this policy came out exactly one year after Biden announced 28 billion U.S. dollars worth of funding for semiconductor investment, we can do better than a four-word catchphrase about yards and fences. Did you really just drop more money, more problems by the notorious B.I.G.? Well, the sentiment fits, because right now, multi-billion-dollar venture capital firms are all figuring out how they're going to do business under these new rules. And I guess, meanwhile, for China's tech industry, it's a case of get chips or die trying. Wow. Welcome to the second episode of our special Inside China series. Looking at the Biden administration's latest restrictions on China's tech industry, I'm Jared Watt, and I'm Jasmine Set. In this episode, we're going to follow the money. You're going to hear from two globally respected experts who approach China's tech industry from very different perspectives. One is a veteran analyst. He's documented these past years of Beijing's crackdown on China's tech industry giants, including the one that owns the company we both work for, the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. He also brings a deeper understanding of the state of China's economy right now, and the options that are left for Beijing in achieving both its economic goals and its goal to become the world leader in artificial intelligence. And the other has been closely studying exactly who's been investing in China's high-tech industries. It's not just U.S.-based venture capitalists. She's tracked down the money going into China coming from nations the U.S. calls its allies. And she's also been tracking the big venture capital money exiting mainland China and flowing across its borders into Southeast Asia. She's got some really interesting findings and some forecasts for what comes next. Let's get into it. Andrew Collier is a former president of the Bank of China USA Investment Division. He's a veteran China analyst specializing in China's tech companies, banking system, and its macroeconomy. And he's also the managing director of Orient Capital Research and the author of a book published earlier this year titled "China's Technology War: Why Beijing Took Down Its Tech Giants." Andrew Collier, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Jared, for being、uh, for inviting me. Regular listeners of the Inside China podcast might remember an interview you did with me in May earlier this year, in which we discussed a crackdown on international consultancies like Mints and Bain working in mainland China, but. By the sounds of Biden's announcement last week, there's going to be a lot less consulting work done in investment in China. Is this it for American investment in China? 
Uh, no, no, not at all. I mean, there's still uh, people investing in stocks and bonds and in government bonds and corporate bonds to some degree and in the A-share market from abroad. So it's certainly not over for investing. The overall level has come down quite sharply uh, for both because of the geopolitical reasons that we're discussing today and also because of the problems that the Chinese economy is having. And is this de-risking in action or is this decoupling by another name? Well, I'm not going to get into the niceties of de-risking and decoupling because there's a lot of confusion and the Europeans are pushing de-risking to some degree. The fact of the matter is that China and the US are at odds with each other one way or another, and both sides are looking to uh, separate or reduce their level of economic activity in trade and investment in many ways between the two countries. My personal feeling is this is going to hurt China a lot more than the United States. But we don't know what the outcome is until we wait a few years. And what was the reaction within the circles you move in you know, over the past few days since this announcement? How was Biden's announcement received in the investment world? Well, to, to be honest, I think it's blow, blown up a lot more in Washington than it has in the investment industry. I mean, investors have known for several years that things were going south, certainly since the Trump administration imposed trade uh, embargoes. And then with the further actions that the Biden administration has taken, on top of that, the property industry has been crashing significantly for three years. So I speak to a lot of investors who basically have given up on China as an investable target several years ago. So for them, the venture capital world is really much, much smaller than overall foreign direct investment into manufacturing capacity or into the stocks and bonds that China issues. So I consider this a lower issue among investors. It is a bigger issue for China, just because it's another indication that the technology they so desperately need is going to be harder to get. Well, just upon your reference to you know Trump and his tariff policy, I see there's a 45-day comment period before this policy comes into effect. Do you think there'll be any leeway sought from American investors and, and venture capitalists in the way that we saw American firms requesting exemptions from Trump's tariff policies? Well, there will certainly be efforts by the plutocrats who were involved in venture capital to push their line in Washington. The problem is it's going to be an uphill battle because there's so much consensus between the Republicans and the Democrats in Washington over this issue. And they would they would have to essentially be arguing that there was some benefit to the United States to investing in China. Now, I have heard the argument recently that there's a lot of areas that the Chinese are superior to the United States. I will give one example, which is uh, financial lending under and financial and also Alibaba. Both of them uh, had a much larger population base and were able to scale up in size more than in the United States. So there are things that we can learn, and possibly in even in quantum computing, there's reports that, that some of the computers are able to do things that the American computers cannot. But that argument is tough to make if you're trying to do a startup, because then you'd have to say, well, gee, we can we can put some money into this business in China, and somehow we'll ring fence any support for military applications. It's going to be a real tough argument. So I don't think there's a lot of wriggle room at this point. And that's interesting. You talk about the ring fencing of technology. This uh, phrase or a buzz phrase being introduced, small yard, high fence. 
no one's quite quantified how big the yard is. But that kind of brings me to my next question, and that is the details of this announcement. It specifically restricts American companies, American investors, from getting involved with mainland Chinese companies in these specified technologies. But Andrew, what about the strategic partners of the US, Japan, India, Australia, South Korea, the UK? Are they just expected to fall into line? Well, I think they probably will fall into line for the simple reason that it's not going to hurt them very much. I mean, venture capital is really not a big deal for the economies of the West. China is very eager for venture capital money, but they can get a lot of domestic money to replace foreign money. And so the technology is the key issue for China. But for France and Japan and, and the United States, it's not an economic issue so much as it is a decoupling. The bigger issue is what it does if like France is trying to play the middleman between the United States and China and wants to keep trade going, or you've got the automakers of Germany, there's a lot of optics there where this is another area where they don't want to feel like they're ahead of the United States on the venture capital issue because it may reflect badly on other more important trade issues. And I see you mentioned the concept of investment uh, internally in mainland China. Let me take you back, please, to your book. You detailed how Beijing essentially went to war with China's big tech companies, including Alibaba, the company that owns the South China Morning Post. Can I circle back on a comment you made to the China-Britain Business Council in December last year? You said, quote, I don't see a massive turn back unless the semiconductor funds go broke or the employment situation becomes more dire, unquote. Here we are in August 2023. China's youth unemployment rate is at 20%. And Joe Biden has effectively announced it's going to choke all U.S. investments into China's semiconductor industry. What plays are left for Beijing here? Does it pivot back to the big tech companies and throw its money into these companies? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, if we talk about venture capital, that's in very, very high-end, fairly small investments into quantum computing and other areas that might have significant outcomes. The semiconductor business is in a different uh, piece of work because you're talking about billions to construct these fabs. And that's something that the leadership in Beijing seems to determine to continue on that track. Now, I have been of the view that at some point, there's going to have to be a softer tone taken by Beijing because trade is very important to China. Technology and chips are very important to China. And they can't replace the economic growth that comes from exports, which are now declining. And they also can't substitute in any near-term fashion the chips that go in that make the economy run. So there may be some effort at some point, and we are seeing some softening signs. I mean, there have been some meetings between the United States and China. There's been a, a lot of statements about trying to encourage foreign investment. It's not very solid, and most of it is what I call loosey-goosey policy. But nonetheless, uh, there's a bit softening. But we haven't seen a major turnaround where I think the leadership and Xi Jinping himself believes that state-led investment in places like uh, semiconductor fabs and in you know high-tech computing and so forth can very quickly overcome any problems of the international community. I, and I just don't think that's going to work. I think it's going to be a very slow road. I note Biden's official announcement gives a timeline of 12 months to review and then either modify or remove the country's targeted of course, there's only one country targeted, and it's two special administrative regions, Macau and Hong Kong. Do you see any prospect of this law changing next year, and also given it's a US presidential election campaign year? 
Well, that's a good point. I think the, the answer probably is no. But I do think that within the Biden administration, there is this, a growing sense that there have to be more carrots and fewer sticks towards China. There has to be, as, as one pundit in Washington noted, there has to be some sense that there's an end game to the Washington consensus to try to encourage China to alter its behavior to the norms that the United States would like to see. We're not seeing that. I'm seeing still seeing hardline stuff. And it's certainly as the election gets closer, it probably is not going to improve. But at least within the holes of the Pentagon and the Treasury Department, the Treasury Department and Janet Yellen in particular, there's an effort to try to soft pedal things a bit. And upon that, Andrew, Janet Yellen is scheduled to go and visit Beijing very soon. How is she going to soft pedal this announcement? Well, she is apparently, according to the reporting, was pushing the Pentagon and the Biden administration to try to narrow the these tech venture capital controls that they put in place. She was saying these are too wide, they're too vague, they're not structured as financial rules, they're just sort of vague policy pronouncements. And I admire her for taking that stand. So she within China, they tend to like the business community and she may be seen as a more of a honest broker between the two sides. So I'm a little hopeful about that visit. Well, hope is not often a word we hear used in the current state of relations between the USA and China. Andrew Collier will, of course, watch for your continued comment and analysis. Thank you very much for your time. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Noor Luong is a research analyst for the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at the Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. But beyond the job title, she is a globally respected researcher into China's AI industry and AI diplomacy, and has done the serious homework on who is investing in it from around the world, as well as studying the investment money coming out of mainland China for AI across Southeast Asia. Noor Luong, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can I start with referring to the analysis you published back in May and recap this week in a blog post, and that is the dominant media narrative is about the US and China, but your research has unpicked the relationship of the nations within this strategic grouping known as the Quad, Japan, India, and Australia, along with the US, and their investment mm -hmm. into China's AI industry. Can you tell us how this contrasts with the investment by the nations of the EU and ASEAN? Yeah, absolutely. So just to, to provide a little context for this particular research that we published, I believe last year, last May, but we also have a series of work looking at uh, different Chinese investment in, you know, really key regional areas like Southeast Asia as well. But looking at the Quad itself, um, which is a, an informal, you know, uh, grouping between um, United States, Japan, India, and Australia, it's really interesting for us to, to see that when when looking at um, Chinese you know AI investment into these particular countries as well, we see that the United States stands out as as a country that receives the most Chinese investment, right? And when we look at the other three quad countries, including you know the the one in uh, the Indo-Pacific region, so India, Japan, and Australia, they also invest more or have more financial linkages with 
China than they do with one another. So that really stands out in a sense that, you know, the Chinese market, technology and capital are really important. And they, you know, it's a country that is, you can say, is a second uh, important player following the United States when it comes to technologies, like emerging technologies like AI. So it's a really key insight into, you know, what exactly is happening between all these key countries and how are they engaging with one another. I should also say that, you know, financial um, linkages are almost operating on a separate plane from, say, you know, national security or diplomatic engagements. But it's really important for countries to be diplomatically closer to one another, right, for, for them to also engage technologically. So funding is really important. It's one important indicator of how a country is doing um, technologically and how they are you know, helping each other develop technologies as well. So that is one area as to why we, we look at to, into um, the quad countries. And what I found was really fascinating was your finding that, you know, these countries, Australia, India, and Japan, each have more AI investment activity with mainland China than they do with one another. How does that work? So, you know, China is a um, developed, country in, in when it comes to um it's the size of its market and the global reach right so it is almost um normal for these countries to be attracted to the chinese uh, capital so in that sense um strictly speaking about you know the financial uh landscape it makes sense that these countries are more financially tied to to china because when we look at each individual um Quad countries, uh, AI ecosystem, uh, particularly for Australia, India, and Japan, they have nascent AI markets. So um, when when it comes to cross border investment, it it does make sense for these countries to be getting investment from countries that are going out and uh, you know doing a massive international outreach. And we see that in Chinese policy documents as well. For example, the 2017 AI development um, plan which you know explicitly says that um their goal is to encourage more ai firms to go and and do uh uh international outreach to invest and acquire companies that would be helping the chinese ai ecosystem develop more faster so that in that sense um you know to put that in context it made sense to see this uh, result can i ask you your opinion on this impending investment ban by the biden administration specifically on American investors in China's high-tech industries, specifically AI included, how do you think this will affect these other quad nations and their investments? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to AI, especially um, just AI systems in general, uh, the executive order explicitly says that um, they're going to require notifications for uh, certain types of investment, meaning venture capital, private equity, merchant acquisition, greenfields, and other things. Um, in in Chinese companies, and you know the AI, the alliance and uh, allies and partners to mention part of it. It's very interesting to me, and this is my first impression. I could be wrong um, when I dive deep, deeper into this later. Is that I think the EO is trying to close a lot of loopholes, potential loopholes that could potentially you know um, be exploited by my firms that are doing the investment and firms that are getting in the investment. So um, in the process of trying to close any potential loopholes, they also trying to capture a lot of transactions. So 
anything that, um, you know, any foreign companies that have subsidiaries in China, um, that will be captured. Any foreign companies that are majority owned by Chinese investors or firms, that will be captured, right? So can you, you can think about countries or firms in, in foreign countries, like, you know, third-party countries, like Quad or um, European countries that could potentially be affected by this. So there, there are definitely certain areas that could potentially impact um, these foreign firms. But at the same time, I'm optimistic because um, USG is trying to talk to a ton of allies and partners, at least to share you know, the conceptual goals and understanding of the executive order itself. And um, there are certain Certainly, uh, public meetings like you know the G7 um, summit uh, that happened a couple months ago. You know these leaders publicly made statements about how they're trying to address risk from outbound investment um, and trying to make sure that it, it complements uh, existing tools like export controls or or the inbound investments. So, you know they are trying to think about how to align um, interests across different countries. So at least in that in that sense, I'm optimistic that um, you know we're still in the process of talking to uh, these key countries because we certainly cannot do it alone, or else there will be a problem of backfilling um, since China is not only getting investment from the United States. So I think I think that um, is something that we need to keep on on watching in the future. Let me zero in a bit more on this executive order by the Biden administration last week. It specifically targets venture capital funding into China. Mm -hmm. And I note you posed a question in your Twitter feed back in February, quote, what else comes with VC funding? What did you find? Yeah. So it's not just, it's just not the money in general. And the executive order is also pretty, pretty cognizant of that as well. Um, it talks explicitly about the intangible benefits that um, come along with the money flowing into China. And I have to say that, you know, I don't think the executive order is very worried about, you know, the exact amount of money flowing into China. It worries about the uh, what else comes with the money. So that includes uh, mentoring, coaching, could be, you know, expertise that the venture capital firms are offering, you know, different startups in China, because that's that's the stage where companies are trying to, you know, commercialize or get, um, you know, in the market. So venture capital firms are quite important in that space because they have years of expertise, right? They they know how to select promising companies and they, pl they place really big bets on, on those companies. So, you know, taking that away means that, you take away important investor signals, right? That are pretty important to industry and tech watchers in general. And in general as well, you know, PRC government is not short on, on money, right? We I take a look at um, uh, different financing mechanisms that the government has uh, been using to, to channel a ton of money into strategic industries that they care about. And there's an understanding that money can't buy everything. But at the same time, uh, Beijing might need might might still need a ton of U.S. expertise to build the advanced technologies that that it wants. So, you know, taking that away means that there might be some potential way to to halt the development of um, emerging technologies in China, or not helping uh, China develop technology that could potentially be used against the United States. So that's the understanding of of the um, extra things that comes with the money. 
nor you also looked at how Chinese AI companies are expanding investments throughout Southeast Asia. Now, we've talked in previous podcasts about how Chinese investment in cryptocurrency was moving primarily to Singapore. Is this the case with AI investment as well? So when it comes to Chinese AI investment in Southeast Asia, um, and we're only looking at venture capital and private equity investment, it's pretty limited, right? We, we looked at that over the past decade. When we compare that to U.S. investment in Southeast Asia, in particular Singapore, you know, Chinese investment pretty much trails behind U.S. investment. But when we look at trends over time, it's increasing, right? Um, and I'm saying this because, you know, Chinese investors are relatively new players in the region. There are a ton of other important ones. You know, we're talking about Japan, we're talking about European countries like Germany and the U.K. They all are... Uh, um, you know, dependent economic partners to Southeast Asia. So China is trying to get there. And I think when when being pressured by the Chinese government or um, thinking that the Chinese economy is slowing down, they might be looking to other regions to, to reap the benefit of, you know, um, the technologies that they are investing in. So they might be looking towards, you know, regions like Southeast Asia in the next um, couple of years, especially as they're getting... Um, scrutinized by U.S. Uh, restrictive measures, like, you know, the about investment regime as well. No, this prompts me to offer you a hypothesis for you to test, given your extensive knowledge. We covered Trump's trade war from the get-go uh, on our podcasts, and we saw how it pushed Chinese manufacturers in mainland China to move into Vietnam uh, and Laos, uh, primarily to avoid the tariffs is it not feasible that Biden's tech war will achieve the same result? Will Chinese AI companies simply set up shop in Southeast Asia? Some of the really big tech conglomerates in China are already trying to make their, their way uh, to Southeast Asia. And we've seen some examples of that. Um, you know, the, the Wall Street Journal article uh, puts together a, a really good data set on different cloud computing centers um, in, in Southeast Asia. And I think most of them are in Singapore. Um, and that aligns with our research as well, because we've seen, you know, different um, financial linkages, um, or you can say also commercial linkages um, between Chinese tech giants and um, different government entities and commercial entities in Southeast Asia. So, you know, things like, oh, they are going to have uh, different branches in you know, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, or they are setting up R&D centers, cloud computing centers to really be present in, in the country that they are interested in. So, you know, hypothetically speaking, if they are getting a ton of pressures from, from uh, foreign countries like United States and maybe its allies, they might be going to places where U.S. does not have the strongest presence. So we're talking about maybe, you know, uh, Southeast Asia, we're talking about um, Latin America, Africa. So, you know, that's a trend that I'm watching in the future. Um, and I think for these companies to really succeed as well, um, and, and one strategy they've been doing is to acquire um, local companies and, you know, operate there um, and perhaps like expand to other parts of the world. So that's, that's one way to, to really do it. 
But again, it's it's quite early for me to, to say explicitly what is going to happen. Obviously, we can't predict the future, um, but we can only, you know, set up monitors to figure out like what, what could potentially happen. No, what's the end game here? What happens in the next year? A year from now, if we have this conversation, where is China's AI industry? Yes, that's a tough one. Absolutely. Um, but I think... Well, if you're you're looking specifically at, um, say, you know, private sector investment in China, um, because that's a crucial component to to fund certain AI development, it's it costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of capital to um, stand anything up. So, if you look at that um, component, I think you know in the next couple of years you might see a certain drop in venture capital and private equity and funding in China, and. I'm glad to say that it's probably not only because of the executive order, because there are certain, you know, factors that we need to consider um, in a broader context as well. So when we look at the Chinese economy, it, it is slowing down, right? And there are uncertainties around the regulations coming from Beijing um, on, on generative AI. So in versus of sitting back and think, okay, maybe this is not really a a stable place to invest anymore. Or they'd be thinking that like, okay, maybe government signals are telling me that, yes, it is It is a, a place to invest in. So it could go either ways, but I think that it really depends on how the Chinese government or uh, Chinese investors are going to substitute the intangible, intangible benefits that I talked about earlier, because that's a really key component to um, inject more expertise or help these startups or companies commercialize their products. So I think if Beijing is able to supplement that, it's going to, um, you know, at least stand up against the impact from the executive order. But again, it's also complementing, you know, different existing tools like export control. So I think there is a ton of things that, um, that are coming their way. So they are trying to indigenize their technologies, you know, at home as well. It will be an interesting story to watch unfold. Uh, Noor Long, thank you so much for your time. It has been most illuminating. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. So Jasmine, I'll just add a note here to say part of the joys of our job making the Inside China podcast is chasing experts from one end of the international time zone to the other. And that interview we just heard was recorded late at night in Hong Kong in my home studio broom closet, which was also early in the morning from a hotel somewhere in the American Midwest. Did you make the ultimate sacrifice and turn off the air conditioner for sound quality? I did indeed, and I can tell you the temperature was a cosy 86 degrees Fahrenheit or 34 degrees Celsius by the time I'd finished, but it was well worth it. And with that, where are we headed next, Jasmine? I think it's time we did what it says on the label for this podcast. In our next episode, we're headed inside China to find out what our colleagues are hearing from the semiconductor companies, the scientists, and we're going shopping for NVIDIA's A100 chips at the world's largest electronics market, just across the border from Hong Kong and Shenzhen. I'll see you there.